Halls of Fame celebrate the most elite and legendary leaders in their field, but there's no one to honor the Halls of Fame themselves for their contributions. Until now. Join me as I tour the country, inducting these revered institutions into my own personal Hall of Fame of Halls of Fame. Along the way, I'll interview the curators and historians who fill these destinations with priceless artifacts and inspiring stories. I'm Bradley Barth, and this is Hall Pass. Today's Hall Pass grants us access to the World Video Game Hall of Fame in Rochester, New York. Founded in 2015 by the Strong National Museum of Play, the Hall has so far honored 40 video games, many of them iconic classics. Today I'm setting up a two-player campaign with John Paul Dyson, director of the International Center for the History of Electronic Games and VP for Exhibits at the Strong. We'll talk about our favorite childhood video games and consoles, some of the weirder items on display at the museum, and which game we choose to play if our lives depended on winning. Let's see if I can push JP's buttons. John Paul, we're sitting here inside of a 90,000 square foot expansion to the Strong National Museum of Play, housing the inductees for the World Video Game Hall of Fame. A quick heads up to our listeners, this room is really crowded with kids playing video games, so there will be some occasional spikes and background noise. Just consider it part of the experience as if you were here. What was the vision that you were trying to convey with this uh, brand new facility? You know, video games are having this transformative effect, not only the way we play, but the way we learn, the way we relate to one another, just have fun. And so here at The Strong, we have the world's largest collection of video games and materials that document the history of video games. So you want to create a dynamic, interactive, fun place that explores that history, that honors that history, and then also a fabulous new home for our World Video Game Hall of Fame. Yeah, and I think you've successfully established that. It looks very state-of-the-art. There's so much to look at. There's so much to play with. You could really spend hours here. Yeah, so yeah, well, If you just came here and learned about video games, you couldn't play them, it'd probably be a disappointing experience. You right. want to do both. You know, the Video Game Hall of Fame is still pretty young. It's maybe about eight years old. You have something like 40 inductees so far. Uh, among them, you know, the, the titles that you would expect. Super Mario Brothers, Sonic the Hedgehog, Grand Theft Auto 3, Mortal Kombat, Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, etc. Of those who have made it in so far, is there one in particular that is most special or meaningful to you? Well, you're asking me to explore my childhood to some degree, and so my lifelong interest in video games. So it's always hard to pick one, you know, what's your favorite child, that sort of thing. I always love the Oregon Trail, and I think it's both because you have died of dysentery. I have died of dysentery, and I've lost parties, you know, members of the party along the way. But I think for me, that in some ways, it boils down the essence of how do you overcome a task in a video game in a fun way? How do you learn something? And it was really a pioneer of educational games and also one that really taught you history as you're playing, but you didn't think about that when you're playing. And that's part of one of the beauties of video games is that you're learning in all sorts of ways. Sometimes it's a subject matter. Sometimes it's how to be persistent in the face of failure mm -hmm. <laughs> because you do die dysentery along the way. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the reason that video games are so wonderful and so much fun. So I've always loved the Oregon Trail. Played it when I was younger. And um, it's funny. It's an, it's an old school game. People still that sit down to play today and whether they're going back to their childhood or whether they're new and my kids have played it and found it compelling and interesting because it somehow boils down the essence of, of choice, 
of strategy yeah. of adventure that happens in video games. Yeah, sure. It is a pioneer of video games, no pun intended. Uh, Oregon Trail, always notorious for being one of the more difficult games to defeat. Uh, did you actually ever successfully make it to the end of the trail? I have done it before. You know, I think I've lost parties along the way, and there's what was a setting. I can't remember how easy it was, how much money did I get to start off with. But that piece of failure in video games, I think, is really important. And the fact that video games are a safe place to fail. And you can work at a game, work at a game, work at a game, and then eventually you get it. And that moment when you finally get it, whether it's getting all the way out west, yeah. Or whether it's essentially grabbing that ledge in a game like Tomb Raider or in um, a game like Tetris, getting that last lock in, in the place, there's that sense of triumph that's there when you finally get it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great that games can incorporate in educational elements uh, into it as well. For me personally, this might be a bit of a cliched or trite answer, but the soft spot I have is... Super Mario Brothers. I just remember as a kid getting that Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, so exciting. Super Mario Brothers was just such a you know unique platformer. Nobody had ever seen anything quite like it before. These inventive worlds. And I just remember I have two younger sisters and I remember playing the game and I got quite good at it. And I would have these turns that would go on forever. And then finally they'd take a turn and they'd like die in five seconds, you know, run into a Goomba or something. And that would be the end of them. And I'd be like, okay, well, my turn again. You know, and they would always be like, oh, that's not fair. And I'd just be like, hey, you know, that's, uh, those that's, are the rules. Those are the rules. So explain to the audience uh, what the nomination process is uh, for the video games. How are they selected? Uh, who ultimately votes on it? And uh, what qualities make a game worthy of inclusion here? So anyone can nominate a game for the World Video Games Hall of Fame. Just go online and do so. And then a staff committee uh, looks at those different nominations and overall chooses a list of 12 finalists. And those finalists are chosen on the basis of four criteria. So there's icon status, a game like Super Mario Brothers. Everyone knows it. There's longevity. Has the game been around for a long time? Geographical reach, is it played across the world? And finally, influence. Sometimes a game gets in because it's influential, even though it may not fit those other criteria. That list of 12 finalists who meet those criteria then goes to an international selection advisory committee, about 30 journalists and academics from around the world. And then they vote on that, and that comes back to the selection committee for the final determination based on their votes. So it's a pretty rigorous process, actually. Yeah, We're not just uh, picking our favorite game and saying, oh, yeah, that needs to be in there. Right, right. And I'm sure that there are some passionate debates that come out of it, too. Yeah, you definitely get people who say, yeah, I can't believe this game isn't in there. And oftentimes, they're what you might term hardcore gamers who mm -hmm. love one game. And then that comes at the most when we induct a game like Microsoft Solitaire. People are like, well, why is Solitaire in there? You know, and yet this game, Call of Duty, is not yet in there. Right. And part of it is because there are many different types of games, and some are very casual games. And that really has um, an impact on the way a broad swath of people play. Yeah. Probably more people, a lot more people play, spend hours and hours wasting time in Solitaire than maybe that one sort of niche game that's a real sort of fan favorite with certain communities. Solitaire has saved many an office worker from a boring Monday at the office. So 
I can appreciate Solitaire's contribution. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, this is actually one of those times where a Hall of Fame focuses on a subject matter that many present-day attendees uh, are actually old enough to have been around to experience from the very beginning. So, uh, you know, I, you had mentioned before that you grew up on a lot of these games. I'm not trying to make you date yourself, but <laughs> tell us a little bit more about the era of video games that you personally grew up in. What are your, some of your earliest recollections of playing video games? So I'm born in 1969. I'm, 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 I have no shame about, about my day. And so I remember in the 1970s getting like a home version of Pong. I can't remember if it was Pong itself or one of the many knockoffs playing that. And then going to arcades. And the arcades in the late 70s, early 80s were where the action was in terms of yeah. video games and maybe socially too. I don't know. Maybe a little bit. You don't know how, how geeky and awkward you were. And then you have some of the Atari 2600 comes in they, yeah. um, in the late 70s. And then video games now are in the home. It's not the first console, but it's really the one that brings them in a large extent. You talked about your sister, the sisters playing and how you could outplay them. My parents wouldn't buy me an Atari 2600. They said I had corrupted, you know, the brain. And so I would go to my best friend's house and he had one and want to play it all the time. Of course he had it, so he's so much better than I was. And, and so his games would last a lot longer than mine and I would die pretty much right away. But I personally grew up playing those. And then when personal computers came along, doing that as well, even on some old mainframes. And that's the thing about video games. They've now been around really as a mass media for about 50 years. Yeah. And so pretty much almost everyone who comes to a museum has some experience of playing um, a video game. And now, of course, they're ubiquitous. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I too remember going to the arcade uh, you know, with a pocket full of quarters, having to make change. Uh, you know, nowadays, like most of the time, you know, everything gets loaded onto a card and then it becomes impossible to even calculate how much each game <laughs> yeah. really costs. But uh, yeah, I mean, I remember that stuff too. And I had a lot of the the early games. I mean, I had, uh, I tried playing Pong. Um, I had an Intellivision, which had those really weird long game controllers with yeah. like numbers one through nine on them, almost like a telephone yeah, right. pad. Um, uh, we, and in fact, I, I always, I, it's funny, you know, everybody loves Space Invaders. Intellivision actually had the better version of Space. They had a game called Space Armada, which was actually better <laughs> than actual Space Invaders, but nobody remembers Space Armada. <laughs> but I had ColecoVision, I had like all of those. So very simple compared to what's out there today, but it still was uh, a very, at, at the time, uh, a state-of-the-art, brand-new experience. And in some ways, there's a return to some of those simple games yeah. with mobile phones. So mobile gaming is probably where most people play games now, yeah. whether you're just calling up Wordle on your phone, or which is not in the World Video Game Hall of Fame, or right. something like Bejeweled, which is a, a very simple game. Yeah. And so that simplicity of play in some ways harkens back to those early arcade days. Yeah. And what's cool is that you are actually starting to see here and there a lot of retro gaming bars or arcades pop up now where you can play a lot of like your old fashioned cabinet and console games. And that's pretty cool too, that there's an appreciation for that, that people want to go back and have that nostalgic experience. When you come to Strong Museum, we have almost 400 arcade and pinball machines. So it's a yeah. great place to play that. What is actually the size of your collection? So for the video game collection, I'd say it's more than 
60,000 video games related artifacts and then hundreds of thousands of other archival materials that document how games were made, um, how they were designed, produced, played. And those often come from key people in the industry or key companies, companies like Atari. We just talked about Atari. We have their corporate archives for their coin-op division. It literally came in a whole tractor trailer load worth of materials. And so we can look at a game and see what decisions made in terms of how it was designed, how it was produced, how the artwork was done. And that's really important. You know, when we started collecting this, we said, okay, there are, there are places that collect the history of the novel, history of film, history of television. There needs to be a place that collects the history of video games as well, because there is this huge, like a $300 billion market, larger than movies and sports by some measures combined. And so there needs to be some place that collects that history and preserves it. So people can understand how are these brilliant pieces of art and play and design created? And so we do that here at the Strong. Yeah. I mean, you have everything from the first ever commercially available video game, or maybe really it was even the first one ever. It was Computer Space. Is that Computer what it Space, is? yeah. Computer Space. Uh, you have the Magnavox Odyssey, which is the first commercial home video game console. You also have various computer chips and schematics used in the development of various games. So some really cool stuff. Uh, anything among those possessions that you'd say was a particularly prized or rare find for you? So I think a couple of things related to games that are in the World Video Game Hall of Fame. So one is you mentioned Pong. So we had the prototype chip for home Pong and also the schematics and how it was laid out. And um, so that's really interesting to see at the, at the, at the sort of hardware level design. But then another game that's in the World Video Game Hall of Fame is The Sims. And so we have the notebooks that Will Wright, the designer of The Sims, used in creating The Sims. And you see him sketching his ideas, sometimes literally sketching out ideas. Either here's a dollhouse or, or figuring out how to translate human behavior into computer code. Yeah. And so seeing the, the process and the thought design of the designer at work um, is re really fun just to see and really, I think, eye-opening for people. Then we have fun stuff, like the t-shirt that says, I died of dysentery <laughs> on the, the Oregon Trail. So. Yeah, yeah. Is there something that you feel like is the most historically significant from a video game industry perspective? I think when you start talking about first, like that Pong chip, for instance, or the setup here for um, Tennis for Two, which is the first public demonstration of a video game. It's not yet in the World Video Game Hall of Fame. Uh, going back to the late 1950s at Brookhaven National Laboratory. And so I think those iconic sort of first things are often really the very significant thing, what people gravitate towards. So honestly, people also gravitate most to the things that they had as kids. Yeah. So what tends to be the most popular things for an individual guest are those things that are like, oh, I remember where I was when I played that game, whether it's an arcade game or in someone's living room. And they're transported back to that moment and feel again those emotions or that sense of wonder when they enter those worlds that the video games created. Yeah. Do you also have, is there a white whale item out there, something that you've been trying to track down forever, whether it's just a really obscure game or some kind of artifact that you just haven't been able to get your hands on so far, but you would love to? Well, there's um, something like... Uh, the Bradley Trainer, for instance, which is an adaptation of a game called Battle Zone to military purposes. Um, it's sort of interesting to, to look at it. It's one we have already, sort of a fun one. So those 
fans who know something about video game history may know the story of E.T. and how E.T. supposedly sunk the uh, you know Atari and yeah, right. it caused the video game market to crash. So and, was, and and the cartridges ended up in a landfill in I think New Mexico or somewhere in the desert. Right, exactly. So we have one of the ET cartridges excavated from that landfill, along with it, some of the dirt from that landfill here as well. <laughs> That's awesome. as a sort of testament to this moment when the video game crash seemed to be in peril. Of course, you're not just fine. So that's yeah. a fun little thing we have in the collection. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. What about weird accessories? You had things like the, the Nintendo Power Glove, which like really bombed. And you there was even, I remember when I played uh, Nintendo, they had like this one robot. It was like Rob the robot and he like had these gyroscopes that he would spin and they had to stay on a platform. Uh, and if they stopped spinning, you'd like lose the game. Well, we do have that. We, we, we do have Rob. Oh, you do have Rob. Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah. He, and we are actually, we have many Robs actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, one's on display. Yeah. And he was packaged with the Nintendo Entertainment System. And it was sort of these moments where after the Atari crash, people were like, are people going to be comfortable with video games? Are they done and so i think nintendo thought okay robots people love robots and right. in the early 80s there was sort of a craze for robots so when it comes out in the u.s in 85 uh it's packaged with this rob of course what turns out to be the hit is the video game system itself right not the accompanying robots so we do have yeah. that we do have the power gloves you know it's interesting sometimes there are these custom controllers yeah. um uh there's a um japanese japanese video games are these train simulators um, and so there's one, I think it's called Denture de Go, which is a whole, it looks like you're, you're operating a, tr uh, a train. And so you see that. And, um, that's one of these so weird accessories that you'd have as you bring the train into the station, you sort of push the lever up, that sort of thing. The number of those things are, which are pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. All right. I'll have to take a look for that yeah, yeah. and find that since I didn't see that yesterday when I was looking around, because yes. that's a lot of fun because they do, they tried to experiment with a lot of crazy stuff and some stuff stuck and some did. I mean, they had like the, uh, they had that pad too, the power pad, which is kind of like the early version of like Dance Dance Revolution where you had to step on the thing. So they, they tried a lot of fun stuff. Well, Nintendo, especially Nintendo's, you know, it's a company that goes, it, it dates, about 130 years old or so now. They go back to making making these playing cards, like uh, Hanafuda cards. And so Nintendo's always been a toy company, a play company at its heart. And so they're they're open to experiment. Wii Sports, which is in the World Video Game Hall of Fame from the Wii, was one of these experimentations that they really hit a home run on. Right. And um, but there have been others where they tried. They're like, okay, no one laments the passing of the Wii U, for instance. Right. Yeah, right, you know, right. It's sort of like. It's sort of awkward and ungainly. And so there are always those failures as well as those successes. Yeah, yeah. No, Wii Sports uh, 100% deserves to be there. Of course, in the early days of Wii Sports, I remember when people weren't quite used to the concept yet of working with that controller. People were accidentally throwing and launching their controllers into their TV sets when they were like playing the bowling game. They would forget in the moment what they were doing and let go and they end up breaking their their electronics yeah no definitely that's why they're the straps there. they have the straps yeah. that's right that's right what's some of the more unusual uh video game related merchandise items that you have on display oh even things like for instance just attachments for we're talking about Wii sports yeah attachment for the um the uh, the actual Wii paddles, you could turn it into an actual tennis racket and, and yeah. swing as if the experience would be that much better. 
And some of the fun stuff is that, well, it is actually display merchandise as well, too. And um, so it could be a giant statue of a Sonic or um, or, or Link from Legend of Zelda, uh, Tomb Ra Lara, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. And there's there's fun and sort of silly stuff um, and, you know, sort of hats and that sort of thing. Uh, there's a Doom statue we have, a Doom, like, sort of tabletop statue with a you know, demons coming out and all this sort of weird stuff. Yeah. But then there's also some really compelling stuff here. So not exactly merchandise, but for instance, Nintendo, we have the Nintendo um, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of controller that could use for people who were paralyzed. Yeah. And so it was actually breath activated. And so Nintendo also a fun Nintendo Fun Center for children in the hospital. Yeah. And so there's these sort of the silly stuff. And then there's also these things that are sort of moving and show you, okay, yeah. this is video games are really meaningful to people. This is a way the companies have reached out to do to, to reach out to these communities and do that. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, that is fantastic. All right. So now I'd like to play a game called Superlatives. And so this is where uh, I ask you, or I'm going to give you various adjectives or descriptor words or phrases, and then you name the inductee that best fits that description in your mind. Okay. You ready to play? Sure. Okay, here we go. Which title was the most inventive or groundbreaking in terms of its gameplay? That's such a hard question. Um, um, uh, you know, let's go with Sid Meier's Civilization. Really sort of, uh, you know, how do you encapsulate all of world history into a video game? And he managed to do that. They do really have Sims essentially for everything now. That just shows how popular the genre is. You have everything from, you know, Sima Civilization or a city to Roller Coaster Tycoon. Right, and Oregon Trail is a simulation game. We have here... At the museum, the Sumerian game, which is not in the World Video Game Hall of Fame, but it's yeah. a, from the 1960s, and it was the first sort of educational computer game. You're, you're right. running ancient Sumerian civilization. So all these things things are there. Whether you're you're playing someone like an Animal Crossing, you're playing these sort of um, these sort of animals who live in a village, or it's something where like Sid Meier's Civilization, where you're doing the whole world, right? Of the whole world. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Let's do another one. Which game has the most iconic musical score? Oh, probably I think you, you'd you have to go with uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, perhaps. Okay. okay. Just nice. because the music is at the core of so much of that game. Yeah. And, and that was, I think, the first game we inducted that was not the second game in a series to be inducted. You know, yeah, Legend of Zelda had been inducted earlier. Yeah. yeah. So we'll go with that. All M right. Music cool. is really important in video games, as you, uh, I, yeah. as you know. Actually, you know what? Probably should be Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers, if they think about it. Yeah, because, well, because that, that the theme is so iconic. Yeah, everybody knows the Super yeah, Mario yeah. theme, and even some of the uh, secondary and tertiary themes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like every, you know, it's all of them. The underground thing, do 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 do. Like everybody knows, like all of them. What is the most frustrating rage quitty game? Ooh. Tetris, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it depends. Everyone has different. Things they're good at and different things that really um, frustrate them at different points. Some games, frankly, you know, I'm not a StarCraft player. So I mm -hmm. get there, I die right away. I don't know if I usually get frustrated. So usually, yeah. Frustration is usually that happens when you're like, okay, I know I can do this, but I can't do it for some reason. Right. Uh, you know, if, if, if it's a game that's totally out of your league, you're like, okay, forget it. I'm just bad at this. 
But usually that moment when you're like, I know I can get this. I know I can get this. I know I can get this. Yeah. And it still frustrates you. Or you do something stupid. And you're like, oh, I was right there. And then I blew it. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's something my dad always used to say about certain video games is that some levels would always seem impossible. Like, I'm never going to ever get through this level. It's just impossible. They built it so that it would be impossible. And then finally you do it. And then weirdly, it's just like once you get it that first time, you kind of figure out the trick to it. Yeah. And then you can do it over and over right, again. Right, yeah. So I guess even that, there's a little bit of a, a lesson learned in patience, you know, maybe sometimes taking a break and coming back to it rather than intentionally breaking your television by right. throwing the controller uh, into your TV. Or pounding your head against the, uh, <laughs> the TV or the monitor. That's right. That's yeah. right. I will say personally for Tetris, I, I was really good at Tetris. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Tetris for me, actually. Tetris, uh, I feel like if there was one game that I could have liked, and I'm sure I still really couldn't beat like a pro gamer, but if there was one game that I feel like in my heyday I might have been able to give it a good run I feel like it was Tetris I could like play it on the top speed and yeah have it where it was stacked up pretty high and managed to you know knock it down pretty fast yeah no I, I consider myself pretty good at Tetris and Tetris 99 when it came out uh, a couple years ago was a lot of fun because you're playing with other players um the thing with Tetris I'd always find that at some point I'd be doing really well and then I just like Missed by just a little bit, and all of a sudden it starts stacking up. I'm like, oh, it just like had gotten that one point. I yeah, that's you know, the worst when yeah. you just like missed it, and yeah, now yeah, it's yeah. totally off. So, among your inductees, what would you say is like the most? Uh, all right, get all the rage out of your system. <laughs> violent game. I think to me, Grand Theft Auto Three. I think it's got to be Grand Theft Auto Three. No, I suppose you can make say a fighting game. That's yeah, what I think yeah, so as well. But Grand Theft Auto Three was. A controversial game. It yeah. was an open world game where you're going around and causing all this mayhem. And I think it's yeah, it's it's stunningly compelling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things that people misunderstand about video games. Is they is think, okay, what's happening in a video game is gonna translate somehow into the real life. And the mm -hmm. evidence is pretty clear that we as humans are pretty good at differentiating fantasy from reality. Yeah. And that there is no linkage between playing a violent video game and going out and causing real-life violence. Mm -hmm. Just there isn't a linkage between watching a violent movie and, and doing um, going out and causing real-life violence. And there's over the history, there have been these moments when people have said, okay, this is, this is beyond the pale. We can't mm -hmm. have this. But one thing you see is that you look back later and you're like, Really? That was right. what caused, yeah. That wasn't even that yeah. big of a thing. Yeah, you know, we have, um, um, you know, there's a driving game, for instance, here from the 1970s that causes moral panic because yeah. you're running over the death race. D yep, you're running you over, you know, sort of these gremlins that look like stick figures. And you look at it now, and you're like, really? This is what you know? These little stick figures? Yeah. And, and people are really good at differentiating fantasy from reality, um, and that's. Video games sometimes have this cathartic uh, ability for us to go through and um, really start experiencing very different. Yeah. If anything, it might be a good outlet for, you know, stress release and getting your frustration out. It might actually be a healthy way of, of channeling uh, negative energy. The same way that, like, people like to go to those uh, 
uh, you know, smash rooms now and basically go in there and grab a bunch of uh, dishes and plates and electronics and uh, smash them all up. It's yeah. not because they're necessarily destructive, violent people. They're just trying to get it yeah. out of their systems. Yeah, or you know, in a fun way, so we're sitting here in the exhibit and I can hear some in the background playing trombone hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah the thing. Video games are just a great way to deal with the stress of life. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. All right, so you actually mentioned E.T. before, that infamous Atari game that ended up in the landfill. Uh, I did want to ask you, what does make the World Video Game Hall of Shame? What is maybe the notoriously worst game ever made? Worst game ever made. That's a hard one. And again, E.T. often gets that category. And it is. It's a terrible game. Though made under impossible circumstances. It was yeah. such a short time frame. But they tried to take a movie that was built around the slow-paced drama yeah. and translate into these 8-bit graphics where it just didn't work. Yeah. Um, you have failures. So people are like when Cyberpunk came out, people are like, oh. But then, oh, that, yes. Yeah, yes. but that's redeemed itself. My, you know, yeah. One of my sons has just playing has been playing playing it a lot. Oftentimes. Um, video game versions of like movies were just really, really bad. Just trying to capitalize on the buzz around the right. movie and you may be trying to make a quick buck off of it. And so they rush the development. I mean, that's right. basically what E.T. was, right? Right, exactly. You know, you contrast that with games that actually did did it pretty well. So for instance, like Tron, the arcade game is much better than the actual the movie in some ways. Yeah. Or... You know, Star Wars, there are a lot of bad Star Wars games, but the arcade game where you're trying to destroy Death Race is a pretty good game. Yeah. Because it's vector graphics. And now as you get more narrative in games, um, then it's um, then it it becomes such that um, sometimes even a game like The Last of Us, which is in the Hall of Fame, um, then translates actually into television pretty well because there's, yeah. there's more narrative in, in there. And then sometimes you have games that are almost like intentionally being funny about being bad. So one of my favorites was the um, Penn, and, uh, Penn and Teller did a game called Desert Bus, which is all about driving to Las Vegas. Okay. And it was done in real time. So you had to like literally drive the bus for like 12 hours to get to Las Vegas. And the landscape never changed pretty much. I never heard And it this. drifted That's slowly funny. to the right. So if you like just try to like take down your key, your, your, uh, keyboard key it wouldn't work right and so a game like that where you're like okay um i'm going to uh just send up the notion of what it is to play a video game pretty yeah funny. uh now i have a fun thought experiment for you uh i don't know if you read about this earlier this year but palmer lucky the founder of the virtual reality company oculus uh created a vr headset that will quite literally set off a series of explosive charges and kill the user uh, if their avatar dies in the game. It's like literally game over forever. Uh, if you owned one of these headsets, which obviously he made only for himself as like a prototype, all right? You own one of these, your life is on the line, what game are you playing? What's gonna give you your best chance of surviving for as long as possible? Well, it won't be an arcade game because you're going to die fairly soon because they wanted to get through those quarters. <laughs> um, probably Age of Empires. Okay. So I, um, it, Age of Empires is this sort of historical strategy game called Real-Time Strategy Game. 
And especially when my kids were little, after they went to bed, I wasted more time playing that game so I could beat every level in the first game, including the expansion packs on um, maximum speed, hardest difficulty. So coming down in front of Age of Empires, I'm lasting for at least five hours and probably winning in the end. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> Buy yourself some time, good strategy, and you have a chance of winning right. in the end. And make sure the kids are still sleeping the whole time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Like, it, it was funny because uh, obviously that's not coming out on the market anytime soon, a device that will actually yeah, kill yeah. you. But, you know, there has been a time sort of like, oh, well, you know, can you have uh, some of those uh, – uh, games with devices that have like the uh, like the haptic uh, feedback where somebody punches you or hits you and there's you know maybe some kind of uh, physical response maybe that's something we'll see a little more of although even with that it's like well how severe of a physical response because I don't know if I'm playing like Assassin's Creed yeah, right. and I get like stabbed I'm not sure I necessarily want to even virtually experience that right yeah there is a version of ping pong I've seen where you get a shock if you miss the ball. <laughs> And one of the most stressful games I've ever played was actually a game with a headset that read your brain, some of your brain activity. Mm. And so they created a game that it was like a zombie game. So the zombies are coming at you. But if you um, basically, they came faster, the more agitated you got. So you somehow had to uh, do this combination of maintaining the zen-like calm while you're simultaneously blasting zombies. Very hard to do. Wow, yeah. that's fascinating, yeah. actually. Yeah, so it was like it measured. So it wasn't measuring your heart rate; it was me measuring, measuring your brain waves. Brain waves, yeah. and it's your brain activity picked up in in the uh, stress of trying to fight the zombies. Right. That actually attracted the zombies more. Right. Right. Oh, that's right. fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there are plenty of hands-on opportunities here in this section of the Strong Museum. Is there one in particular that people always gravitate to? Like, what's the headliner? I'd say the giant 20-foot-high Donkey Kong is yeah. the one that people go to. And um, that's one because Mario is such a universal character. Um, Mario gets a debut in Donkey Kong. And then, um, so I think anytime you take, take something over, oversized and make it big, this is fun to play it in a different way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I would Was have there to. one that you gravitated towards when you were looked around um i definitely wanted to play the uh the pong and tennis games because that's something you just don't get to see right. yeah, yeah. too many places Again, like those real like, size oldies yeah. Yeah. they were all fun like I, I it was like i didn't know what to do first it's it's uh, overwhelming in a good way and one of the things we do here when we try to create exhibits is think about video games in different ways so another companion exhibit is, is level up exhibit yeah in level up you get a wristband um, you create an avatar, and then you go through and do real-life interactives inspired by video games that earn you achievements with your avatar. So you could be throwing a playground ball at a, at a virtual target, a real physical playground ball. Or you could be um, pushing a giant ball to roll your character around or solving a real-life um, uh, sort, of, um, sort of stealth zone where you're trying to get past the sensors and the lasers and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so... The fun of creating these sort of exhibits is you're bringing video games to life in some ways. Yeah. These things that you might play in GoldenEye um, is also becoming a real-life interactive that you're doing and trying to sneak by. Yeah. No, I was going to ask you about Level Up, so I'm glad you brought it up. And as you play, because you have this RFID wristband that collects the data on all the different games that you play, you basically build up 
uh, attributes about yourself. It learns what your preferences are of different games and how well you play at some of these different challenges that you have, right? So there is that there's a stealth challenge where you have to kind of master the art of a stealth video game. There's one of those endless runner, like temple run challenges. Yeah. Uh, there's a uh, guitar hero type game, beat the boss, where you have to time the hitting of the button. So you have like a lot of the classic motifs that you see of, of what makes games popular. Right, and we looked at, we built a lot of these around the idea of what differentiates video games from other media. And so we said it's action, it's verbs. And so we have this whole periodic table of video game elements. And so in the move section, you have the, the chance to do an endless runner where you're actually jumping and dodging yourself um, or the cell zone where you're trying to sneak by like in a game like Metal Gear Solid. And I think looking at what makes video games different from those other art forms, I think is really interesting. And also that inspires a lot of fun interactives. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I, d I did beat the boss. Oh, I'll good. tell you that okay. much. Yeah, like yeah. that one was, I felt good about that. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, I had defeated, it was a big dragon and uh, it took me a minute to figure it out. And then once I got the hang of it, I'm like, oh, okay, this guy's going down. <laughs> so in your main room with the inductees, which I think you call the high score room, uh, you have, it, the room takes you through the chronology of video games from early experimentation with games among the various computer scientists who program them, including some students at MIT. And since then, uh, you know, a lot of big milestones along the way as we head all the way into the modern era. Um, so along the way, what was interesting along that chronology is video games found itself at the center of some really important social issues, things like gender inequality, copyright, uh, censorship, and freedom of speech. So what does that say about video games in terms of what it has meant to our culture over the decades? Well, anytime you get a new form of media, there's societal controversy over it. When the novel rose in the 19th century, when film came up in the 20th century, television, people worry about it. And so video games become this sort of mirror in some ways that's held up to the concerns and worries of society. Maybe it's a funhouse mirror because you know, <laughs> they're video games. And so you see video games at these crucial moments. So things like free speech, for instance, what games do you sell to, to a minor? As we talked about earlier with violent video games. So one of the things we have on display, for instance, when the Supreme Court heard this case where the state of California was trying to restrict the sale of video games to minors, we have one of the placards that, that one of the protesters is holding right there with a big picture of that. And so you see these moments. You know, issues like um, sort of gender representation, especially you know, how are women represented in video games has been a big issue. And so one of the things we have here in this exhibit, for instance, is a women in games exhibit uh, that looks at the way that women have been key creators of games Games like King's Quest by Roberta Williams, for instance, is in World Video Game Hall of Fame. I'm looking over here, I'm seeing Centipede. Uh, mm -hmm. Donna Bailey was one of the creators of that. And so how are have women been creating video games from the beginning? But also you get a game like Tomb Raider, for instance, with Lara Croft. We get getting issues of representation. Um, you know, Lara Croft, when she first came out, on one hand was groundbreaking because she was one of the first really popular, successful female characters in a video game. In the other hand, she was highly sexualized in terms of the way she was done it for what was presumed to be largely a male audience. And over time, they've altered her image, literally physically. And so we have a statue, for instance, for the new Laura Croft here um, on display. 
And so I think with video games, you see these moments where the form is wrestling with what are the different notions of society on these issues and how is representation happen in the video games itself. Mm -hmm. Jerry Lawson, who is one of the, the pioneers of video games, created the Fairchild uh, Channel F system for interchangeable cartridges. So when you play the, the, the Atari 2600 um, or the Intellivision or ColecoVision that we talked about earlier, you have a cartridge you put in and take it out. Right, because it used to be that the games were actually uh, programmed into the actual hardware, which yeah. you know is much less convenient. Yeah, and much less adaptable long term. You get a Pong, right. you're playing Pong. Maybe a couple of different variations, whereas a Pong was essentially the same thing. You get to buy a whole new machine and do it. So Jerry Lawson is a black engineer who has this leading role at Fairchild in creating this. So we want to call out these different people who have played key roles in the history of video games over time. And just to demonstrate how video games really have infiltrated all aspects of our society, I have an anecdote even that jumped to mind today, which is I was thinking about how uh, at uh, one of the offices that uh, I worked at a couple of years ago, uh, Pokemon Go became one of the really big hot games uh, for a time among uh, mobile device owners. And so, you know, everybody was on the hunt for uh, their favorite Pokemon characters. And I literally remember having uh, a coworker uh, who one day came into the office late. I, I want to say, maybe I'm exaggerating it in my mind, but I want to say he was like huffing and puffing mm. and haggard and sweating and everything from like a hot summer day coming into the office totally late. And his reason for being late was I was riding the bus and I looked outside and there was a Charizard outside. So I had to hop off the bus to capture the Charizard and I, then I had to walk the rest of the way to work. And that just shows how video game crazed uh, we've become as a society at times. Well, and my mom is sharing on Facebook every day what she does in Wordle. So sometimes <laughs> she's 85. So that's, uh, I think video games are, are penetrating so many different aspects of society. And, and I think, the rise of the mobile phone is really key here too. You can play a game like Pokemon Go because it has all this amazing geo sort of location information that you can do. And it's also with us all the time, has this amazing computing power. 50 years from now, 100 years from now, um, we will probably be playing games in ways that we can't even envision now. Yeah. But then also we'll probably be still playing, going back to a game like Tetris or Super Mario Brothers and saying, hey, that's still a lot of fun. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, so JP, as of our interview today, the latest inductees include Wii Sports, The Last of Us, Barbie Fashion Designer, and Computer Space. But let's talk about who hasn't yet earned a spot within your museum. I want to play another game with you where we'll examine who's been snubbed so far. I'd like to hear if you think these candidates one day might deserve to make it in or... If not, why not? So I'm going to start with one of my personal all-time favorites, Castlevania. Uh, so just a really cool platformer. You know, it's, you're playing Simon Belmont or one of his descendants, battling Dracula and his minions. You've got the uh, the whip. It spawned a million sequels. There's a Netflix cartoon based on it now. Uh, you talk about also some iconic music. Um, I, it's it's a it's a great game. Has there been any clamor for Castlevania to get in? You know, it's been mentioned, but not really um, like 
a big groundswell of support. You know, it's funny. I think in music, yeah. music immediately when you start talking about Castlevania. And you know, the problem is we've only conducted forty games. Yeah, and there are new great games coming out every year. And yes. so it's very hard. It's a little bit like in baseball. You know, there was that player who's like, okay, oh, they batted. 285. You know, it was yeah. pretty good. Or or maybe they, 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 you know, yeah. they had a couple of years, they went over 300. Mm-hmm. They're on the cusp. Did they right. get in the Baseball Hall of Fame or not? Castlevania, I would say, probably I could see it being nominated. Yeah. Um, it's going to have a hard time getting in, if I'm being totally honest. But okay. who knows? Make a case for it. Yeah, All I'm, right. I'm open. So. All right. All right. Well, I may have to, you <laughs> and, know. And obviously, it's not just me, obviously. Yes. So. No, maybe I'll have to get my lobbying game on for that one. Uh, all right. What about? Uh, I have to think this one's getting in eventually. Cubert. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. come on. Everybody loves Cubert, and he even swears Where's, in the yeah. most adorable way. Yeah. No, Cubert is actually again. The, the, there's so many good arcade games, and Cubert is one of those because a character who's real, one of the first really recognizable character, mm-hmm. and it's still a lot of fun. Warren Davis, the creator of Cubert, has been here, and. Uh, and Cuber and even had this sort of, they had a solenoid that actually knocked. So you get that sort of knocking sound. It's actually a physical thing going outside the game. Yeah. I could see Cuber making it eventually. Yeah. Probably the, there are a number of, I think, arcade games in front of it, but I could see Cuber making it. Yeah. Eventually. Another game I'm quite good at, actually. Are you? Yeah. 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 I'm not as good at Cuber as I think I would be, because usually a game like Tetris I'm very good at. And Cuber, I don't know if it's that isometric sort of piece of it. I don't know. I yeah. think I'd be better at it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I think I remember walking around the museum a little bit. There was um, some kind of display on uh, a, a woman who broke the record for being one of the oldest people to win a gaming competition. Yeah. And uh, she, I, I believe I saw her playing Cubert. So it might have been Cubert that she actually won. So Cubert, a game that you can play well into old age. All right. So if Solitaire is in... Why not Minesweeper? Yeah, yeah, no, that that that's a good the good one. And Minesweeper has definitely come up for consideration. I could see Minesweeper um, making it eventually. I wasted way too much time in grad school uh, playing Minesweeper and Tetris, so uh, I could see it. Making okay, that. and uh, I'll do one more. Actually, not really one that I personally have played a lot, but it just jumped in my head as like uh oh i'm really surprised that it hasn't it's it's not there yet but it's probably been nominated is guitar hero yeah and that's you know i think the one question really influential game um and um i think longevity mm. is the one one question for that one so guitar hero burned really hot for a while and then it sort of like went away so but the influence thing is really important. I thought you were going to go with like a Resident Evil or something like that. There's a horror game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I haven't played a lot of Resident Evil also. I almost asked about uh, the the Batman Arkham games because those are really good too. Uh, yeah, know. Arkham Asylum. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, those are – and again, some of those games – something's about the craft of a game is just so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you're, so there's a game that maybe is not pushing a new style of play – but it's just so finely honed in terms of how it was made that that's um, really really important. Yeah, yeah, and I would say that the Arkham series definitely qualifies for that. So what does the induction ceremony look like here? Do you have any kind of official ceremony? Do you get any important folks from the video game world to attend? You said you got Gilbert, uh, Hubert's uh, creator uh, has been here. Who else has been here? 
So oftentimes, um, is it, so it varies. So for instance, when we first did it, we actually had a live ceremony. And then you get people like Don Rawich, one of the creators of uh, Oregon Trail, that came, mm. you know, came out for that ceremony. In recent years, in parts of redoing the expansion project, we did a sort of video ceremony. And then we'd often get people uh, from the video game industry who would provide videos. So something like a Sid Meier for Sid Meier Civilization, or um, Don James, who from Nintendo of America, who was the guy who was building a lot of the actual Donkey Kong cabinets here and been with the company for over 40 years. So one of the things we're thinking, now that we have this fabulous new space that just opened in June at the last induction ceremony, how do we use this right. to have a really amazing ceremony here for that? Yeah. And, and that's sort of been um, a key thing. What's interesting about video games is that you know, unlike other like so sports halls of fame, you know, you're inducting a thing and often something created by a team of maybe hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah, yeah. So who do you call out as that face of there? Right. In movies of an actors who you know, you know, do you get the person who's playing the voice of Mario? That sort of thing. Yeah. So what do you do? It's an interesting question. Yeah, it is. All right, so I want to play one more game with you. Um, at my day job, I for some reason seem to get a lot of news pitches around video games, and some of them are rather odd. So I'd like to quiz you on a couple of these. Using salary comparison sites, the online gaming platform Solitaire calculated how much the world's most famous video game characters would earn doing their jobs in the real world. So you want to take a guess as to who makes the most money of all of the major well-known video game characters. The one caveat I'll give you here, we're not counting any kind of professional sports athlete that you might find on a John Madden game. These would be like fictional video game characters. Well, my smart aleck response is knowing how much it costs to get uh, plumbing done, I might, might want to go with Mario. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mario actually... They have him as uh, number 13 of the worst paid characters. Really? Yes. They and, haven't hired a plumber recently. And then. interestingly, they actually went as far as to specify that that's how much, not just a plumber makes, that's how much an Italian plumber makes. Wow. Well, they okay. said, which how about is a, like, How about an Italian-American plumber? Though? Okay. That's okay. I, mean. <laughs> I was like, I don't know why like toilets in Italy are different from everywhere else, but he came in 13th on the, the worst paid. I think it was something like... Forty-seven thousand dollars a year, or something. Oh, like yeah, that, yeah, that's that. that's um, maybe, yeah, maybe. Let me think about this. Um, spies, uh, you know, you have the Carmen San Diego, for instance. Um, James Bond, sort of in Golden Eye, that sort of thing. I'll give you a hint. He's a he's a CEO. I, you're, you're not, I'm, I'm blanking here. All right. Well, it's Handsome Jack from Borderlands. Oh. He's like the corporate CEO of an intergalactic weapons manufacturer and supplier. <laughs> and uh, they say his salary would be like $432,000 per year. Okay. Approximately. The lowest salaried of everyone, which this was kind of a little bit of a cheat on their part, but I guess they wanted to have some fun with it, is Pac-Man. They gave Pac-Man a yearly salary of 20000 
$670 for being a security guard. They said, you know, he chases ghosts. So yeah, he's... yeah, yeah. I, I guess <laughs> that's not enough money for him to put food on the table. Yeah, right. though, and he eats a lot of food. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Pizza delivery, like, you know, <laughs> guy, I don't know what that is. Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, all right. So, you know, I've also been getting uh, a lot of pitches around, uh, just Super Mario Brothers and certainly with the movie coming out and everything like that. And it is a huge summer blockbuster. Meanwhile, HBO has a hit on its hands with The Last of Us. Sonic was a popular movie franchise once they got his teeth correct. I know there was a big uh, controversy around that. What video game would you most like to see somebody make a movie out of that they haven't yet? And then what would make the worst video game movie? I think Red Dead Redemption would be a fun oh, Western sort of yes. like, um, I think that could be a lot of fun. Yes. It's the only thing, they're probably cinematic as they are. But yeah. Oh, then the worst, Wordle. <laughs> Wordle? Yeah, that's, Wordle would be pretty tall. I mean, they just made a Tetris movie, so. All, all it would have to be is like the title screen of the movie. Right, right. Just, and just you just figure out what the title of the movie is. Right. Anything where it's, it's abstract. That's yeah, sort of thing. I, I just feel like it doesn't translate as well. Yeah, um, to a movies. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just gonna say for fun. I'm gonna say Frogger would make a pretty bad movie. Yeah, good you know, Seinfeld like, skip, but not bad movie. Right, like you know, you can if you can imagine like uh, you know the movie announcer for that one, like you know, in a world where. <laughs> Frogger, you know, why did Frogger cross the road to save his family? It's not going to work. Right, exactly. Next fun pitch. A, uh, a study by Cribbage Online analyzed a database of completion times of over 60,000 games across all PCs and consoles to figure out which took the longest to not just complete the main campaign, but also gather all of the achievements, unlock secrets, etc., and so uh, tops on the list is this game, Ancient Domains of Mystery. It's a roguelike game for the PC that they say takes 83 days to 100% complete. So my question to you is, uh, are you the obsessive type that when you play a, a game like this, like Assassin's Creed is like a good example of one where there's like lots of side quests where you just have to complete everything to feel satisfied that you know you've you really fully won the game in every way you possibly can i am not <laughs> i uh I, you know i can do the main main quest of a side quest sort of catches my interest uh then 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 i do it again the one exception is i mentioned age of empires not quite the same but i needed to complete every um campaign every scenario on the hardest level. Yeah, the Age of Empires one. That was the exception. That was the exception. To, yeah. yeah. I played Assassin's Creed Black Flag. Loved the game, but that was my fatal mistake was I got way too caught up in trying to do all the side quests and collect all these things and fashion materials. And I mean, they even had villages that you would walk in and there'd be random people in the villages sitting down at a checkers table and then you could play checkers with them like a game in a game and then i'm sitting there and i'm like why i just want to yeah. commandeer people's boats and <laughs> set them aflame and throw them overboard and make them walk the plank you know i've had some of the same experience yeah we get that and it's interesting now as you know video games have been using ai and procedural generation for, for a while now but you do more of that you know, you're going to have games that will effectively have limitless uh, possibilities. You could spend your whole life just playing things. People have used, I think, ChatGPT 
uh, connected to Skyrim to have NPCs give you sort of like, you know, side quests and those sort of things. Yeah. And so um, I think in the end, no one can be a completist about every game they play. All right. So since this is really a brand new wing, uh, rather than ask you what's coming next, since this is all already very, very new. I mean, I'm sure you're always working on new ideas. Yeah. But I, I think instead I'd like to ask you where you think the gaming industry is going next. Um, things like VR and augmented reality uh, obviously are on the horizon. We're starting to see uh, that become more accessible to a wider audience. Uh, what's that going to mean? Uh, what, what is the, where's the future of video gaming going to take us? I think it's this combination of both depth in terms of content. So something like AI will allow you to create in, in, in scales that are truly massive. And yet common, combined with that and sort of going against that will be more emphasis on craft and sort of the human element and telling these stories. You see there's a rise of indie games, for instance, where you get one or two or three people really sort of doing a heartfelt project. This is not about generating you know, two million hours of, of gameplay time. Yeah. This is about creating a, a story that's really compelling or using an aesthetic device that feels sort of handmade in a sense. And so it's almost like thinking about food. You know, we have McDonald's everywhere. Um, and yet also people still crave that sort of boutique experience, that artisan experience. And so you're going to do the same thing with video games. You're going to have, you know, games that are just being churned out uh, probably using AI to like, okay, I'm going to do this endless variation on whatever game. But then you're also going to have these crafted, uh, sort of um, honed experiences that people will go to. And there'll be pervasiveness. Again, with our smartphones, we're going to be playing video games everywhere. But then there'll be times when we want to sit down with a massive television and be truly immersed in a game too. Again, it's hard to know with, with VR, yeah. how, how long will that go there? So this combination of, technology manifesting itself in all sorts of abundance of choice, but also this human element of craft continuing to come through in the games we play. Yeah. Well, JP, this has been really fun and really interesting. Unfortunately, it's game over for us now <laughs> because our time is up. But before we do go, uh, it is my distinct pleasure to inform you that the World Video Game Hall of Fame has been officially inducted into my show, Hall Passes, Hall of Fame of Halls of Fame. You have 30 seconds to give your acceptance speech. Well, thank you. We are truly honored to have video games ranked with these other human achievements and human passions. And just to let you know, we've entered the initials WVG on the high score list of the Halls <laughs> of Fame. All right, awesome. <laughs> well, with that, we are out of time, but thank you again, JP. For those listening or watching, be sure to check out part one of my visit to the Strong Museum where I profiled the National Toy Hall of Fame. Until next time, I'm Bradley Barth, your Hall Monitor and wannabe one day podcasting Hall of Famer. I'll see you all on the next edition of Hall Pass.